Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome Kimberly Pierce. So it's hard to talk after, you know, right after seeing this movie. It's such an immersive, it's such a complete experience in so many ways. It's so powerful. This was your first feature film. It's like a, a pitcher pitching a perfect game or something. There's so many things that came together, um, so many elements that are so strong. So I just first just want to ask what your experience was before this in filmmaking. I guess you've done some short films. <laughs> Not a lot. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, and thank you. Uh, yeah. Well, my experience had been, let's see, I'd always, I mean, since I was like eight years old, made animations, mm -hmm. um, you know, things like that. Uh, lived in Japan for a while, had a dark room, you know, shot all over Southeast Asia. Um, then went to grad school at Columbia uh -huh. and studied in the filmmaking program. Yeah. And I'd made one film. So this was, uh, this is my second film, and I started it as my graduate thesis project. Mm -hmm. So it was supposed to be a short, because I had read the Village Voice article in 94, and Okay. I was in my second year of grad school, so the natural thing for me to do was to make a between 20 and 30 minute film. And yeah. at that point, I actually thought I could, and the movie ended at the rape. So I mm -hmm. ended up shooting that as my graduate thesis project, and uh, you know, somebody stole a lot of money. So I ended up not being able to shoot the end of the movie. So hmm. we came back, and all the people that I worked with were totally in love with making the movie, and the actors yeah. were like, we got to make this into a feature. And I was like, well, first of all, we run out of money for the short, so yeah. then I met Christine, and uh -huh. then I was lucky enough to develop it um, at the Sundance Writing and Directing Lab, mm -hmm. and uh, then the short became a feature, and then it went through many years of rewriting, hmm. and then it became, you know. And what was the relation to the documentary? Was it, there was a, a documentary about this story, so yeah, was that was something you would, what's the relation of this film to that? None. Yeah, okay. There's no relation. Yeah. What I had ended up doing was, when I first heard about the story, yeah. what was amazing to me was who was Brandon, and why, yeah. and how had he done this? And uh, when I looked at all the different press, there was the Playboy article, the Village Voice, mm -hmm. a bunch of stuff in the New York Times. Um, everybody seemed to be focusing on the gratuitousness of the violence, mm -hmm. right? The stripping, the rape, the murder. And yeah. they would kind of focus on Brandon, but particularly in the Playboy article, it was kind of like, oh, let's like, you know, get kind of excited about this perverse sexuality that this kid has. Yeah. And he kind of brought it on himself. So I thought, okay, well, the real heart and soul of the movie is Brandon. So I went right. to Fall City hmm. with uh, a group of... 15 transsexuals. Hmm. I became friends with uh, a lot of people from Transsexual Menace hmm. because I figured I needed to understand well was Brandon a butch lesbian or was he transsexual or was he somewhere in between and yeah. and ultimately that just became this like huge journey for me to understand hmm. you know who and what Brandon might have been. So yeah. I traveled with them which was great and I was interviewing all the transsexuals you know and saying well you know what are your fantasies like? What is your desire like? You know, what's your yeah. life like? So that I could at least get some kind of composite as to who this kid might have been and how much he might have known and where he might have been in his process. We went to the murder trial and then I ended up interviewing Lana and her mom. Right. And I'll, there's a lot of dialogue actually, not like a ton, but some dialogue that's very important that I actually took from my interview with Lana and used in, the, in writing this. Yeah. So when, she, when Brandon says, well, what are you going to tell them right before the stripping? And, you know, when he says that and she says, I'm going to tell them what they want to hear, I'm going to tell them what we know is true. Like, that's mm -hmm. what she said. Hmm. And when I interviewed really? her and she said that, I just was like, she's like Rimbaud. You know what yeah. I mean? She's just like, she's like a poet, you know? Yeah. It's very beautiful. So that was amazing. In the jail scene, yeah. um, I don't care if you're half monk, you're half ape, I'm getting you out of here. 
she said that to him. Wow. And I, once I heard that, I was like, well, that's gorgeous. Yeah. Because what was great was here was this girl who wasn't like me interviewing transsexuals and, you know, interviewing butch lesbians, living in a queer community, but somehow had this ability to just kind of like accept Brandon and love him for what he was. Hmm. So that was extraordinary. So yeah. she was hugely inspirational, and that interview became the real core of the love story. So there was mm -hmm. a major rewrite that followed that. Just in terms of dramatizing the material, how did that evolve? You, you said you were, this was workshopped and done in a lot of different versions. Can you talk a bit about how you sort of came up with what your approach would be sure. to, to filming it? Well, the main thing, was, the first thing was because yeah. I read all these articles and yeah. they were focusing on the gratuitousness and nobody yeah. got Brandon, and I work with a writing partner. Mm -hmm. um, what we yeah. knew was Brandon was the heart and soul of it. So how could you get, first of all, how could you depict Brandon so that he made sense? And that took many years of figuring out. Yeah. Um, what was he really after? Was it more important yeah. to be a boy or was it more important to sleep with girls? That right. was like an ongoing debate. Yeah. Um, what was his ultimate end? Um, so you kind of, you start to understand that. Then you start creating scenes that make that, you know, clear. So it's mm -hmm. kind of like, then you need the, the, the bar scene where he gets into a fight with the guys. You mm -hmm. know, because we knew that Brandon would take on guys much bigger than himself. So we were like, oh, we've got to have a bar scene where he does that. Mm -hmm. um, we also knew that he picked up underage girls. So we were like, oh, he's got to go down to a skating rink and pick up girls. Yeah. Um, you know, we knew that there was the basic structure of falling in love with Lana, you know, the, the stripping and the rape and the murder. What we really had to work very hard on was the relationship with the guys. Right. Because if you followed the real story, yeah. there was probably, in most likelihood, they knew that he was a girl to begin with. Yeah. So it was a little bit like Los Olvidados, which was a Bunuel film, which yeah. is brilliant, which is misfits among misfits. Right. And we tried that approach for a while where you kind of, Brandon came into the town and he was like this fucked up kid and they knew it. And they kind of let him in, but you knew that they were going to destroy him very early yeah. on. Well, we sort of play with that in that John kind of has a malevolent, you know, relationship with him and they're kind of onto him. But if we took it too far, then the story had no arc. So it was kind of like we had to like yeah. pull that back. We also had to make it that you really liked the guys and that you yeah. bought the relationship with the guys, not just with Lana. Otherwise, there was no arc. So we had to yeah. then create a situation whereby Brandon really idolized these guys and wanted to be like them. Yeah. So that's what really make that's how the, the whole opening really works. And then you degrade that relationship by yeah. degrees. A rape scene is depicted as being usually just pure violence without any element of Yeah, I think a lot of times it's depicted that sensuality. way. Yeah. What was so heartbreaking, I mean, A, to be brutalized that way was terrible physically. Sure. But to have your friends do that to you yeah. was so much worse. So it was really important that we built the friendships in the beginning and that there were still remnants of the friendship all the way through the violence. And then on some level, Brandon felt to, that he was to blame. So that yeah. that's why he's saying, yeah, this is my fault. And those yeah. guys would love him to adopt that narrative. And he borders on adopting it for a while yeah. until he gets to the sheriff's office and he finally breaks down and he's able to, you know. Now, was the short film that you did, was that also f filmed in this area? No, because I didn't have any money. Yeah. I mean, not that we had a lot of money yeah. <laughs> when we finally made the movie. As, it's so funny rewatching it, yeah. because I can see in a lot of the scenes, oh my God, we were supposed to shoot that in four setups, and we did it hmm. in one. Hmm. The whole scene is played out. Or yeah. there's actually one in the barn scene. If you watch it closely, it goes from night into day. Yeah. It's like the sun is huh. rising, like huh. within the three minutes that the huh. camera's rolling. Huh. Uh, no, when I shot the short, I paid for all of it. So yeah. it was like $20,000, and I had to shoot it we were going to shoot either in Long Island or upstate New York. Yeah. And so I looked all over Long Island and found all this farm country, which was great. But, you know, ultimately you didn't have, it just didn't have the feel of the Midwest. So yeah. we went upstate and that felt more like it. But you could never get a wide shot because it never was flat like that. Yeah. So you were really compromised in terms of your ability to just capture 
yeah. like what usually is. I ask that because so much of what is powerful about this film is the physicality on so many different levels. You start with the physicality, the performances, and just the nuances and detail. You know, every element of the way you use the landscape and the physical setting just you know, adds to it, adds well, to it. And that's the great thing yeah. like, that I can say to anybody who makes a low budget film. Yeah. You know, if class is important to you and landscape, try to set it in a time and a period that actually you can get yeah. access to. Like when I went to Texas, it was like we actually could just walk into, like the, we picked the, the farmhouse that for the Brandon, mm. you know, for Candace's farmhouse. We picked it because a woman who lived there basically lived at the same kind of class level of, as our characters. Mm. So it already, you know, structurally, the landscape, everything kind of was sort of like echoing the right thing. Mm -hmm. So it's like if you don't have much money, you know what I mean, you got to go to ready-made yeah. sets. Because yeah. what ended up happening is the day runs out because we were shooting nights. So the night would run out at about 7 a.m. And then all of a sudden you have like 10 minutes before you're shutting down and you literally start, you just point the camera and you roll. You don't even, you barely frame it because you're just steal, like so many shots in boys were things that we stole at the very tail end, hmm. you know, because you need them when you're cutting and you're like, oh wow, yeah. cool, we got like a farmhouse or we got the sunrise, we got the sunset, yeah. things like that. Uh, at what point did Hilary Swank, cut, you know, was she cast? Just a, such a, obviously one of the great performances, you know. Three years later, three years after I started working on it. Really? Yeah. I had looked, uh, I mean, I knew a bunch of things. I knew that I needed a girl who could pass as much on screen as Brandon did. Mm -hmm. I knew I needed a girl who could act. Um, and I kept having these two camps of people, because we started, you know, back in 95. And um, I would get people who could pass as boys. So I'd go through the butch lesbian community, and i go through the transsexual yeah. community. And they could pass, but they couldn't capture the character. Yeah. You know, and then none of the actors would come out in 96, because, right, it wasn't, it wasn't cool yet. Then I think Ellen mm. came out, then it became cool. Oh. Oh, okay. Then I got flooded with all these actresses who were totally <laughs> effeminate, and they were like, I want to be Brandon. Huh. And I was like, well, but do you, have you ever wanted to be a boy? Do you have any sense of what a butch yeah. is? And then they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were like, well, no, not really. So then I would coach <laughs> them. And I was like, you know, you've got to like lower your sexuality. You know, you've got to kind yeah. of find your masculinity. And so then they, they'd go away with all these exercises. You know, hmm. they'd march around with like socks in their pants. and. They come with like a hat on, and you know they had it had kind of kind of come down a little bit, but yeah. still they weren't really anywhere near. Um, so I still had these two huge camps, and we were about um, five weeks before shooting. And I, you know, marched into Christine's office, and I was like, "Look, I cannot make this movie unless I have a girl who passes as a boy, and who can capture this. Like it's because I'd gone to Sundance, and the girl didn't pass, and it's like having a white elephant in the room. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're, it's like writing a thesis about it." So uh, she's like, well, I think you'll find the person. And you know, we sent our casting agent out to LA. Hmm. And I was just like, we have to find the person. So all these tapes came back. And then you know, one night, we happened to put this tape in. Because um, we didn't think anybody on the tapes could ever work. Yeah. I mean, I have so many bad Brandons. <laughs> I even had a period when I had African-American Brandons, which was great, because we didn't you don't say on casting things, you know, oh, this person has to be white, because you, know, you don't want to sound racist, which uh -huh. we aren't. Um, but the story happened to be white, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. If you did an all-black community, that'd be great, but it right. happened to be an all-white community. So we had all these African-American Brandons coming in, and they were fabulous. Like, they totally passed as boys. They were super cool. And I was like, oh my god, we wrote the part for an African-American Brandon. <laughs> but that wasn't going to work unless we redo it. Um, so finally, we got this tape in, and we put it in, and it was the first time in all the years of looking that somebody mm. actually blurred the gender line. Because I'd have girls in there who could pass in real life, but the minute you got them on screen, you know, if you can't act, it just goes dead. I mean, that's why you have to work with actors or non-actors who can act. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time, you know, that seeing she had these huge brown eyes. Actually, on the IFC, I just put together a documentary with them, and I show some of the original casting tape. Mm. And it's, it's great because she's got the square jaw, she's got the nose, she's got the ears, she's got the big eyes. 
so she, she, she blurs the gender line. You're not sure if it's a boy or a girl, but she has so much warmth and energy and love and a sense of humor that suddenly it was like everything became possible. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of girls, when they pass as boys, they would kind of get very serious, you know, and mm -hmm. kind of shut down. And that was like the last thing you wanted because Brandon yeah. was a charmer. Yeah. So you really had to, it was an acting job whereby the actor had to do what Brandon actually did in real life, which was to find a way to open these people up and find a place in their lives. Yeah. There's such a sense in so many of the scenes of sort of menace in the atmosphere, it's sort of a tension. Um, that's hard to put into words exactly, but I, it's there. And I just wonder if you could talk about sort of how you create that, how you, you know, how you build that, because it's so palpable when you see the film. Yeah, well, I think the first thing is to, to build it in the structure, and I've noticed this with my new film too. There's a kind of structure that I like where you have a mini escalation in the beginning mm -hmm. that's a foreshadowing of the big crisis. Yeah. Right? So if you notice Brandon being chased by the boys, right, when they're coming when it's raining and the cousin's saying, you know, you're going to get in trouble, you're going to get really, really hurt, that's your mini thing that says, yeah. watch out, this is a dangerous situation, it's going to get more dangerous. Yeah. Plus, I think most people bring to that situation of a girl passing as a boy and not telling people that she's a girl, yeah. danger ahead. So mm -hmm. I think that that was important. I think the second thing was to ride this line whereby the, girl, the guys were really scary, but you liked them. So they were likable, yet they were explosive. That was why, and we had to be careful because for a while, John exploded too early. There's mm. a scene where the, his daughter pees on him. Well, he used to, it used to actually be in close-up, and he was just like, you know, you little bastard, you pissed on me. And the, uh, the camera was right up close, and mm -hmm. he's screaming into the camera and getting mad at the little girl. And when people watched it, it was a really smart note that somebody gave me. They were just like, you know, he blows his lid uh, too much. I know he's going to explode. Mm. So that was the thing that I thought was really important, but it was too highlighted, so we had to pull yeah. back. Then in the next scene, he blows up at the car race. Mm -hmm. You know, he gets mad at Brandon. We had to be careful that that wasn't, again, it had to be big enough that you knew this guy could explode, but yeah. not so big that he steals the thunder for the rape scene. Huh. So that was something. So that, for me, that you're always building this arc whereby you're giving just enough violence. So it's actually keeping the whole film in mind when you're shooting oh, each individual moment. Yeah, it's yeah. keeping the entire film in terms of the progress towards violence, and it's also mm. keeping in mind this character. Because you had, mm. it had to be enough that Brandon was getting warning signs. It's like mm. tragic inevitability. This is bad, right? But it's not so much that, like, Brandon's psychotic if he stays. Hmm. So it's, it's that weird thing of like, you want to be like, get out now, get out huh. now. Wow. So, so that's part of it. And then the other thing was coming out of neorealism, like Pasolini and Rossellini, and yeah. um, particularly uh, Akatone, which I think is gorgeous. Hmm. Um, and then going into like Scorsese and then the, the stuff in the, the, the 60s, you know, Nick Ray, you know, Nick Ray in the 50s, yeah. there was a kind of like movies that grabbed you by the balls. They kind yeah. of kept you on edge. And that's particularly in the shooting stock and the way that you move and the yeah. handheld. And in, I don't know if you've noticed, but we don't go overboard with handheld. Like we're very careful. Like in the stripping scene, you're yeah. on sticks. Uh, in the rape scene, you're on a combination of a dolly. In the murder scene, you're handheld. On sticks, me on tripod. Yeah, yeah on tripod. Okay. Yeah. Um, but we're very, being very careful to build an emotional arc whereby mm. it's scary, but again, if you ever scare somebody too much, like you can't <laughs> scare them again. Right. So it's, it's keeping it at a certain rate. There's also a lot of use of tones. Um, we use these musical tones that are mm. riding underneath. There's like a sound bed that's going the entire time. Mm. And that's like, you know, vibrating. And then we use a lot of like stuff on the subwoofer. There's a lot of bass in there. And, but that comes in late. I mean, that's all post. That's but po what was yeah. written into the script it was. was the, the what well, was written into the yeah. script. Yeah. Well, we knew we would have it, but what's written into the script really is the arc of the characters. Yeah. Then it's on set saying, you know, I want it to feel like this neorealist stuff, you know, because uh. that's how Fall City felt. Yeah. You know, edgy and rough. You don't want it to have a, a gloss. So many, you know, independent films you see don't give you this total immersion in the stories.
it just seemed different to me than a lot of what you know what, what you see. Well, I was fortunate in that I had a kind of classical structure. Yeah. And I think that's what I think a lot of times independent films are wonderful because they're very personal. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're kind of like fly by the seat of your pants, and I, that's a quality that we wanted. But we also really wanted a classic narrative because yeah. we knew the only way you were going to make it from the beginning to the end was if you really had a good three act structure. Hmm. So it's. Yeah. You know, it, it's like making sure to work that stuff out. And also that thing of, boy, wouldn't it be fun to be handheld here and handheld here and handheld here? And it's like, actually, no. Yeah. It'd be better to be on sticks here, on dolly yeah. here, and on handheld here so that actually I'm giving you something in the murder scene that you haven't yet had. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like you've maybe had it in bits, but yeah. it's also, I think that it's that thing, I don't know if Schrader said it, hmm. a lot of people said it, but a great scene isn't great unless it's like at the, the right point. Yeah. But it's also, oh, it's bad and the beautiful. I don't know if anybody knows, when Kirk Douglas finally decides he's going to direct, it's great, right? And he makes a climax of every single scene, right. and then he has to fire himself, because it's just like, it's terrible. So it's, I think it's really, you know, yeah. it's having to be disciplined, and people will tell you, you know. Yeah, and you have a great cinematographer, Jim, Jim Deneau. Jim is wonderful, wonderful, yeah. yeah. And really, what was great about Jim was, I mean, I had to fire the other DP two weeks before. Hmm. So Jim came in with no prep. Um, people were literally being hired on this shoot and throwing up and quitting. It was so scary, the amount of work to do. <laughs> people were like freaking out. It was, you know, it was like 30-day shoot, seven pages a day, like unthinkable if you know anything about schedules. And Jim was extraordinary. He could get in there and he was just like, you got to shoot four scenes today, which was crazy. And he was like, I know you want five setups on this scene, but you know what, if you do it in one setup, you can have four setups in that scene. That was it. He would just diagnose the problem. And then he was just like, you don't have much time to think about it, so we better start shooting. Hmm. And that was it. We just... And he always emotionally knew where to put the camera. So instead of having coverage, which is kind of deadly, coverage is where you're like, I'm going to get all my masters, I'm going to get all my close-ups, I'm going to get blah, 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 blah. You end up in the editing room, and there's no point of view. And you've got tons of coverage. You don't have really what you need. Mm -hmm. The best thing is to come in and be like, I'm shooting this whole thing in one shot. Mm -hmm. I'm shooting this whole thing you know, from two angles. Jim could do that. And the, the, the stop motion landscape scenes, you know, where things are speeded up, that was something that... Last minute. Was <laughs> that, it? Yeah, totally, because <laughs> we had written all these beautiful sequences in, we thought was beautiful, where Brandon and Lana, because neorealism was half the style, but the other thing was kind of be like, you know, yeah. keeping Tom or Cirque or wanting to be like mm. super imaginative, like you're going into the landscape of their mind. Right. It was all written that way, but we get on set and it's all of a sudden it's like the day to shoot all the beautiful lands, you know, the beautiful imaginative landscapes. And I'm like, wait, it's the day to shoot the beautiful imaginative <laughs> landscapes. Where are the sets? Where's, you know, nothing had been planned. So Jim, which was great, he was just like, okay, I have this idea. I have this guy that I know who can shoot stop motion. Hmm. And I was like, I don't know. So he had shot all this stuff at Joshua Tree. And we looked at it, and it was good, but it was kind of sentimental. And I was like, I don't know. It needs to be really rough. So we brought the guy out. Hmm. And while we were shooting all, the, you know, all night long, he went out. And those shots like underneath the tower, it was amazing to me. He would set it up so that it, stop motion means that you know, normally it's 24 frames per second. Stop motion means that you're doing maybe one frame per second, so that you end up shooting you know, a minute in an entire night. But he would set it up so that it would go off one frame you know, every second. And so that's an entire night passing that you're seeing. It's all mm -hmm. been condensed. And it totally solved the problem. Yeah. So <laughs> yes. there you go. <laughs> uh, OK, we, we, can take, we have time to take a few questions from the audience if anybody wants to ask anything. Uh, right here. Congratulations on a great film. Uh, <coughs> for some reason, when this film came out, I was afraid to see it. Uh, I didn't know who Hillary Swank was or anything like that, but uh, she gave a magnificent performance there, and Chloe Sevigny, too. With the chopped off hair and everything, uh, she really passed as a boy there in the beginning of the early scenes. 
Do you know if she had to lose uh, any amount of weight for that? Oh, no, I put her into training for, uh, for, I think it was six weeks. So I had her, once I hired her and she kind of blurred the gender line, part of the role was I said you have to um, live as a boy and you have to get a voice trainer and a physical trainer. So she had all those things because the big thing was to lower her voice. Um, so yeah, she, we, it wasn't like an anorectic thing, like, oh, you need to lose weight for like feminine ideals. It was, she ended up losing weight because she was working out so much. Um, and then we had her start living as a boy because it was the only way to figure out. I was just like, you better go, you know, to the shopping center and see if you can pass before you end up on a film set. So that was, you know, what happened. In terms of Chloe, I think Chloe did a wonderful job and it's not always recognized, so I try to talk about it. Hillary's performance would not work without Chloe's performance because Chloe was the way in for most people, right? Most people yeah. would identify with her. Right. And it's a harder role, I think. I mean, it's a different role to play the supporting character because there's always the temptation to want to upstage the other actor, right, and get the attention, right, because Hillary has the more physical, the more active role. But it's like if you watch Chloe, that's when you buy Brandon. Hmm. You know, that's when you buy the, the love story. Yeah. And that's ultimately the only thing that ever matters to people, you know, is the love story. So, yeah, I was very lucky that that really worked. Yeah. Yes, uh, I thought I remembered reading, uh, this is before the film came out, that the two rapists were never caught. Did you use artistic license? Or they're really, that's really what happened to them. They're in jail on death row, that's it. Yeah, as it says in the, the end, yeah, Tom, Tom turned state's evidence against John, so yeah. they're both in prison. John that's is, true. yeah, absolutely oh, okay. true. Yeah, John is on death row and Tom will probably get out soon. I just had a quick question about Brandon. Um, did she plan on getting gender reassignment surgery? That was like a huge issue of debate. That was why I interviewed you know, the transsexuals and the butch lesbians. Um, from everything that we knew, Brandon certainly had read pamphlets on it. He had information. He had considered taking testosterone. I don't think he did. But what we really loved about Brandon and what we think is true too is he was sort of like full of these pipe dreams. So they were kind of like organizing principles. Yeah, I'm going to get a sex change down the line, but as long as I can pass and get laid, I think I'll do this. You know what I mean? <laughs> he was a very like, meet my needs now kind of guy. In the moment. Yeah. Okay. Um, first, I just want to say I've seen it before, but it blows me away every time. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to mention it. Um, this is a really small thing, but it's something that's always sort of fascinated me about it. Um, when she has her period, he has his. Um, he uses a tampon instead of a pad, and I always thought that was really interesting that you chose to do that because using that would make him very aware of what was actually down there. And I just was wondering if that was a conscious choice or why you decided to do that. It's a good question, and it was a point of like constant query among mm -hmm. every transsexual, every F to M <laughs> that I talked to. Do you use a pad or do you use a tampon? Because, I mean, at first we didn't want to use a tampon because it was so invasive. Yeah. And to us, it was just like reminding Brandon that he was a girl and it was kind of like rape and things like that. So then we talked about the pad, but every time I talked to transsexuals, they were like, yeah, but the most important thing is that you pass, if you're passing. And if you've got a pad on, you, you don't want something like that. And plus, the mess to them, like actually having the blood be exposed to themselves and then having to throw out the pad from what they said was, that was a bigger reminder of being a woman. Once you put the tampon in, that was it. It was just like putting the dick on, then it could be clean. So I think that there was something about blood being a reminder of femininity that to them, they would rather just not have it. No, it was very sensitive. I mean, I didn't want to offend. I mean, my big fantasy was that transsexuals and butch lesbians and transgenders and everybody in that big spectrum would look at it and A, not feel like I took um, the liberty to define Brandon, but that I gave him an authenticity as a character and that it gave them room to, 
to fill in. Do you know what I mean? Like I didn't want anyone to think that I thought I owned him, nor did I want them to feel violated in their own experience. So, so yeah, we asked lots of questions and then hoped that, you know, ultimately that made sense. And it made sense to me, the blood stuff, not wanting to have that be shown. Okay, well, thanks. That's actually a question I never would have thought of, so um, thanks for asking. Yes. <laughs> um, well, anyhow, congratulations again. It's such a great movie. Well, thank and thanks you for, for coming. Tonight. <laughs>